So tonight we're looking at John uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And these verses are called the prologue to John's gospel. And prologue, just quickly, a general definition is a separate or introductory section of a literary work or musical work. Or it's an event or action that leads to another event or situation. Uh, in an orchestral composition, an overture or prologue introduces the principal themes or the motives that will be developed throughout the work. So it's, it's an introduction to something more substantial to follow. Uh, one commentator describes this prologue as a foyer to John's gospel. But I really like what another commentator said. He said, I'm not quarreling with the word prologue, provided that we do not think prologue means preface. It is far more than a preface. In these 18 verses, we have an explanation of everything that follows from the 19th verse of chapter 1 to the 29th verse of chapter 20. All that follows is intended to prove the accuracy of the things declared in the first 18 verses. The whole truth, as John saw it, concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is found in these first 18 verses. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. It's, it's a very profound portion. It's not just a preface or an introduction. It is actually a summation of the entire book. It's the gospel of John in a nutshell. So in these first 18 verses, uh, John made sure that anyone reading his writing would be clear about who Jesus is in exact terms. And he presents Jesus as the personal object of saving faith in the pages which will follow. As we've already learned, the theme or purpose of John's gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing we may have life in his name, chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. And in this first chapter, John proves his claim by pointing out the names that Jesus bears, the works he performs, and the witnesses who knew him personally. So tonight we're going to look at Jesus as John presents him in verses 1 through 18, and we're going to see this in three movements. The first is his deity, the word was God, verses 1 through 5. His humanity, the word became flesh, verses 6 through 17. And his testimony, he has declared him, verse 18. So let's look at his deity, verses 1 through 5. In these verses, John emphasizes the deity of Jesus. He shows that Jesus came from heaven and demonstrates that Jesus is God. In verses 1 and 2, the word was God. It's verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. First part of verse 1, right off the bat, we read, In the beginning. Beginning refers to the commencement of something as an action, a process, or a state of being. First, in relation to order, time, place, or rank. It can also mean the source or origin of something as used in Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18 says, And he, speaking of Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Beginning could also mean ruler or one in authority, as used in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, and Colossians 2, verses 9 through 10. But the question is, the beginning of what? 
The answer is the beginning of everything. This is a reference to the beginning of the universe as in Genesis 1.1. There was never a time when the word was not. There was never a thing that did not depend on the word for its existence. In John 8.58, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Colossians 1.17 tells us that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things consist. So Jesus Christ is both the creator of the universe, and we're going to pick up this point when we get to verse 3, but he's also its ruler. So in the beginning was the word. This means the word was already there. The word is eternal. He has always existed, and he existed before time as we know it. The word in Greek is logos, and it refers to either an oral or written communication. If you think about it, by words, we articulate our speech and our writings, but it also carries the meaning of the expression of intelligence by word or a discourse. The primary use of logos in scripture is to denote divine revelation in some form or another. It includes the Old Testament and the New Testament, and specifically the words of Jesus. John 3.34 says, For he, speaking of Jesus, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God. Just as the word reveals our mind and heart, so too Christ, the word reveals the mind and the heart of God to men. The Bible is written is the written word of God, and Christ is the living, incarnate word of God. So back to uh, the second part of verse 1 and to verse 2, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the King James says that he was the same. John is expressing that the word, who is Jesus Christ, is the very essence of God. The verb was in Greek is in the imperfect tense, and that just simply means that it suggests something is continuous or ongoing. It speaks of a continuity that is beyond past, present, or future. John eight fifty eight, Jesus uses the same imperfect tense when he said, before Abraham was, I am. So in verses 1 and 2, they speak not only of Jesus' eternity, but also of his continuous or ongoing existence as the Word, as the Logos, and as God. One commentator put it this way, In the beginning was the Word, a continuous fact, and the Word was with God continuously, and the Word was God constantly. So the significance of the opening phrase of John here is that the God who spoke in the Old Testament, who entered into a covenant with his people Israel and inspired and moved the prophets, was none other than God known in Jesus Christ. I like the way the Weist expanded uh, version reads this. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the word was existing, and the word was in fellowship with God the Father, and the word was as to his essence, absolute deity. The word was in the beginning in fellowship with God the Father. So John goes back to the very beginning, beyond history, so that we may know and see Jesus in light of eternity. 
So in these two verses here, right off the back, John affirms three truths about the word, the logos, who is Jesus Christ. He was from eternity, he was with God, and was God himself. Verse 3, the word was God as creator. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth through his word, and, and that is the same word, logos. That was the relationship of the word with God in original creation, in the beginning. All things means, it's the word panta, and it means exactly that, all things. In other words, not only a sum totality, but each thing separately, kind of like when we say anyone and everyone. All things were made through him. The word was the agent of God's action through whom all things came into being. In Genesis 1.26, the triune God said, Let us make man in our image according to like our likeness. All three persons of the Godhead are present at creation, but Jesus is the channel of creation. Colossians 1.16 and Hebrews 1.2 confirms that Jesus is the creator. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created that are, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And Hebrews 2 tells us that God, in these last days, spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And the worlds here means the universe and the ages of time. The Word, the Logos, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the creator of the universe and everything else because he is God. So back to John 1, verse, the end of verse 3 says that without him or apart from him, nothing was made that was made. Originally through Jesus Christ, everything was caused to be. And without him, there is no progress or development. And this really debunks the theory of evolution. Unless the creator has designed it, there is no other creation. The word, which was from the beginning with God and of the very nature and essence of God, is the one through whom God acted and still acts, and through whom everything was originally created and nothing further has appeared except through Jesus. Verses 4 and 5 tells us, that the word is the light or the life in the light. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So John now is summarizing, or he's making a summarizing declaration, and he makes a clear distinction here. The summarizing declaration is contained in the words, In him was life. What life? All life. Life is the word zoe, and it means generally physical life and existence as opposed to death and non-existence. But it also specifically is used here, it carries the meaning of an absolute sense for the source of all life. The word, Jesus Christ, is the fountainhead or the genesis of all life, and all life is from him. So there's the physical life in creation, and there's also eternal life. And this is the clear distinction he makes here in verse 4. 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Um, This is back in uh, verses 1 and 2. The word of life here is the word logos and zoe. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Um, That was actually 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, it tells us that God has given us eternal life. In his Son, he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus is the one who brought life at creation and eternal life by his death. So back in John 1, verse 4, the second part says, and the life was the light of men. Light here is the word foes, and figuratively it means moral and spiritual light and knowledge which enlightens the mind, the soul, or conscience. But it also includes the idea of moral goodness, purity, and holiness, and the reward for these virtues like the peace of God or the joy of the Lord, his wisdom, and the benefits that we receive from knowing and walking with the Lord. Life is everywhere, if you think about it, from the largest of animals to the the smallest of plants. Life is everywhere. But only in man can life become light. Man is distinguished from everything in creation because of this light. Jesus is the light of men because he is the one and only true representative of God who brings us the revelation of salvation through him. Man is the first and only creation who can have the knowledge of God and who can commune with God because of the light of men. In John 8:12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And it's interesting here how John pairs the words life and light. Light is the very essence that makes life possible for us to exist. Without the life of the sun, planet Earth, and all its inhabitants would die. Without the light of men, spiritual life is not possible. It it just cannot exist. The life and the light of men is the enlightening or life-sustaining influence of the only true spiritual life, which is salvation through Jesus Christ. And we're going to develop light and life as we continue in our study of John. Verse 5 now, John now says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Literally, darkness means lack of daylight. And figuratively, darkness is a term for sin and wickedness, and also for the consequences of sin. And just as the light and life are closely connected ideas, so are darkness and death. Darkness is symbolic of ignorance of divine matters resulting in death and misery. Not only is there darkness in the world, but the world itself is darkness. John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And in 1 John 1, 5, this says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 
The only way to not be in darkness as we live in this world is through a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is God, who is the light of men. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For it is... For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light and knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus, as creator, brought forth light to the earth, which was void of form and darkness, he can also bring life and light to a heart that is without God, void of spiritual form and in darkness. Jesus told Paul at his conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 27, excuse me, 26, verses 17 and 18, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. One commentator said, conversion is illumination, a transition from darkness to light. So back to 1 John, the second half of verse 5, it says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The word comprehend means apprehended or understood. There were the Jews and others back then, and then there are those today who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. The light is everywhere, but people are still walking in darkness not obedient to the light. This godless world decides against the light. And it's our privilege as followers of Jesus to be his light bearers. Paul urged the Christians in Philippi to become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shall shine as lights in the world. That was Philippians 2.15. And, you know, we shouldn't fear the spiritual darkness around us. It's everywhere. All we have to do is look to the events of the world, look to the events of our own city, sometimes our own family. We shouldn't have to fear the spiritual darkness, but we should rely on the grace that God gives his children to shine for him. And we need to have in the forefront of our hearts and our minds that the darkness never has and never will extinguish the light. In these first five verses, John presented the deity of Jesus Christ as the word or the logos, who was in the beginning, who was eternal and pre-existed before time with God. And as the word as God, as creator, as the life and light of men. And so now in verses 6 through 17, John presents the historic manifestation of Jesus Christ, his humanity, the word became flesh. And verses 6 through 8 is the introduction to John the Baptist. And and I'm just going to do a very simple, basic intro to John the Baptist as a witness to the humanity of Jesus Christ. And details about John the Baptist are developed more fully as we continue in this chapter and also in chapter 3. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Very briefly, the birth and commissioning of John the Baptist was foretold by the prophets. Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, 1 are just two references to him, and and there's more. In verses 7 through 8, they give us the purpose of John the Baptist's coming. Verse 7, this man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. 
He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. The word believed is used 60 times in the book of John. And again, this is the purpose of his gospel, that we may believe. John the Baptist came to bear witness that Jesus, the Word, the Creator, God Eternal, walked this earth as a human being, that all might believe and have eternal life in his name. In verses 9 through 11, we see that the Word is rejected. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And the emphasis here is upon the fact that the light, Jesus Christ, entered human history in a new way, in a physical, tangible way. He was in the world. Jesus is now introduced as a man, and it's reemphasized in verse 14, and we'll get to that in a bit. But as creator, Jesus made the world, but now, as the Son of God, he made a new creation, if you will. By his coming into the world, he made a new way possible for a new birth, a new life, through his birth and death as a human. A new spiritual beginning for the world was now made possible. And it's interesting how John looks back to creation, and then he looks around to the world. Verse 10, the second part says, The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. John may have been looking at only the Jews who were rejecting Jesus, or maybe he was looking to the world as a whole. The Jews were certainly his own people, and humanity as a whole, as a whole also is his own because he is the creator. But either way, his rejection certainly did begin with the Jews, and it has spread to the whole world. A major theme of John's gospel is the conflict between faith and unbelief. John begins with rejection on the part of Israel, as we see here in verse 11. He depicts the Jews refusing to accept the evidence, growing harder and harder in their unbelief, and finally, finally, their rejection culminates in his crucifixion. On the other hand, he shows a small group of people willing to believe on Jesus Christ, and we'll see this as we progress in the study. But it's still no different today. The world at large will not believe in Jesus Christ, and some are coming be very, becoming very hostile in their unbelief. But there are those who see the evidence and accept Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as their Savior, which brings us to verses 12 and 13. The word is accepted. Verses 12 and 13 read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. The word receive in the first part of verse 12 means to accept what is offered, not to refuse or reject. And it's used metaphorically of a teacher to acknowledge or embrace and follow his instructions, but it's used of Jesus here in verse 12 and also in chapter 5 and chapter 13. And it means not rejecting Jesus as the word, as the logos, the creator, the life and light of men. And by doing so, not rejecting God the Father. It means an individual is faced with a decision to accept what is offered by Jesus in order to obey him. 
I remember before I accepted the Lord, I'd heard about accepting or receiving Jesus Christ, and I thought because I was Catholic that I had accepted Christ. I mean, I had religion. I wasn't an atheist. I wasn't anti-God. So I thought I knew God. I had accepted him. But Paul takes, uh, uh, excuse me, John takes the word receive a step further. It means more than acknowledging Christ in religion. It means receiving and accepting Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God with the purpose or the intention to obey his teachings and his word. This is what knowing Jesus Christ through a personal relationship is all about, receiving what he teaches with the intention to obey and follow him. And for those who do receive or accept Jesus Christ, the second part of verse 12 says, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. I really like uh, the way the translations of the word right. Uh, some of them are the legal right or jurisdiction, the authority, the power, the strength, liberty, or privilege to become the children of God. And this is one of my top five favorite verses. When I first, when I finally did receive Jesus Christ, I knew I had to accept him as my Lord and Savior, and I did. But there was this nagging voice in the back of my head, because somewhere along the line in my religion, I had learned that if you ever left the Catholic religion, that you would no longer be a child of God. And I knew I had to accept Jesus Christ, and I had. And But there was that little nagging voice reminding me of what I had learned. And um, as a new Christian, I started reading the book of John as... We're all constructed to. And when I read this verse, it, it was a weight was lifted. I was, re- it was just, I was so elated that I knew for sure now that I had the right to become a child of God. It was the greatest relief. It was great. Uh, the third part of verse 12 says, to those who believe in his name. The Jews grounded their claim to be children of God on their descent from Abraham. And here John does away with that claim. He makes it clear that the exclusive divine right of becoming a child of God belongs to those who come or are birthed by faith. In verse 13, he continues, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here again is the new creation or the new beginning. To everyone who did receive Jesus Christ, who did believe on his name, he gave the authority or the right to become children of God. This new birth is distinguished from a natural one. It's not of blood, he refers to the human origin, nor of the will of flesh, referring to human sexual desire, nor of the will of man, referring to the choice or the will of man. And again, we're going to develop this more fully as we look at chapter 3. So the word became flesh, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is the incarnation of the pre-existing word from verse 1. He was always from eternity, but now we see the incarnation of him. Became does not mean the beginning of something new or a new existence, but 
a new manifestation or form of the same existence of the word which already existed from the beginning. Flesh means a human nature and the whole of human nature. And dwelt is the word tabernacled. It literally means pitched a tent. It also means to occupy or reside. And it's used in scripture to signify the dwelling of God among men. So the Lagos took on a physical form. He chose the same earthly existence that every human being has, and he pitched his tent and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, 6, and 7 tells us that who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation or emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself, not of his deity, but only of the form of manifestation. He emptied himself, taking on a new form, the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men. So the word took on a new form of existence. He absolutely and literally became flesh. He entered into participation with humanity. The eternal God, who possesses supreme majesty, he didn't shrink back from a union with mankind, physically and with its weaknesses and its passions. The second part of verse 14 says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The word beheld here means to look at carefully or deliberately, inspected or saw completely. John and others were eyewitnesses to the humanity of Jesus Christ. In 1 John 1, 1, John wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 16, that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Luke wrote in Acts 1, 21, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. And the scriptures give us many more accounts of eyewitnesses to the humanity of Jesus Christ. And what was seen by these eyewitnesses was the glory as the only begotten of the Father. Glory is frequently used of the divine presence or Shekinah. John and others saw glory that comes directly from the Father's presence, the glory that the Father shares only with his begotten Son. The thought here is that of a perfect fellowship between the Father and the Son. Isaiah prophesied of this in chapter 40, verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. The Shekinah glory as seen in the Old Testament could now be seen in the Son of Man by man. And verse 14, the next part says, Paul said of the glory of the Logos that it was, he was full of grace and truth. Grace here refers to the various divine favors, or benefits or blessings and gifts bestowed on man through Christ and his gospel. The greatest gift of grace is salvation through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 5 through 9 tells us that. The word truth means divine truth or the faith and the practice of the gospel known as the gospel truth. This gospel truth is derived from the one true God. It declares the existence and the will of one true God, and it's in opposition to the worship of false idols. In John 8, 32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we'll get more into this as we get into chapter 8. 
In verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, and he was before me. Verse 14, the apostle John is proclaiming his own eyewitness to hum- the humanity of Jesus. And then in verse 15, he flows right into the witness of John the Baptist. He connects the two verses. When John the Baptist said, he who comes after me, he was referring to the ministry of Jesus in earthly time. Jesus was born shortly before John the Baptist. Excuse me, that's not right. He was just referring to his earthly time. Is, is uh, uh, preferred before me, he was referring to Jesus being ranked higher than himself. Well, John the Baptist was divinely raised up and commissioned to herald the coming Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And when he said he was before me, he was referring to the pre-existence of Jesus from eternity, as in verse 1. Because John the Baptist was commissioned by God, he was full of the Holy Spirit and spoke in that power. His declarations were not his own personal conclusions or thoughts. They were revealed to him by the Spirit of God. So in these verses, John presents two eyewitnesses to the humanity of Jesus Christ, himself and John the Baptist. And verses uh, 16 and 17, he says, And in his fullness we have all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John repeats what he said in verse 14, that the glory of Jesus, his fullness, is full of grace and truth. This time he contrasts the grace of God and the truth of the gospel with the law which came through Moses. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The law was not inferior, but was prophetic and pointed to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law by his incarnation, therefore making the law no longer necessary. Matthew 5.17 and Romans 8.3 also tells us that. And all who believe in his name will receive grace for grace. That is continuing or escalating grace. New grace upon the previous grace. God's grace has no limit. The law was limited. It was temporary. The law was an expression of God's grace and it was fitting for the need of the time. By his incarnation, Jesus united the same grace of God with the truth of the gospel. The ultimate gift of God's grace comes only through salvation in Jesus Christ. And finally, verse 18. His testimony, he has declared him. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So John closes the prologue the way he began it, with the word as God. And he is the only one who reveals or declares the Father to man. Verse 18, the first part says, no one has seen God at any time. Exodus 22 tells us that, that no man can see God and live. The only way man had a glimpse of God was through his manifestations known as a theophany in the Old Testament. Moses saw God in a greater measure than anyone else, but it was still a theophany. And only Jesus can say, anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. And we're going to develop that again in verses 12 and 14. The second part of verse 18, the word begotten, marks the relationship between the word and God, the Father and Son. Begotten means soul or only, unique or one of a kind. And the word son is the word Theos, which is the same word for God in verses 1 and 2. 
The Son is God, is what John is saying here. He is the only one who shares the true nature of God, who shares his infinity, his eternity, and his totality. The only begotten Son is the only one who has seen God the Father. Second part, or the third part of verse 18 says, The Son is in the bosom of the Father. This can be translated in the Father's lap. And it indicates the greatest possible closeness. It, it speaks of an unmatched intimacy between Jesus and the Father. And it also indicates the eternal coexistence of the Son with the Father. John goes back full circle to verse 1. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He is saying that the unique, one-of-a-kind Son was God and that he was with God in the closest way possible. John points, his point is that Jesus' access to God far exceeds not only that which other religions claim, but even the claims of Judaism. Jesus is the only one who can real, reveal the Father in an unprecedented way. The Son and the Father are so close, their hearts beat in unison with love for the world, John 3.16. Jesus came to reveal the heart of God. He came to speak from the heart of God. And only the begotten Son can reveal the Father's heart because he is in and speaks from the bosom of the Father. And finally, the last part of verse 18 says that the Son is the only one who can declare the Father. Declare comes from the Greek word, which I can't pronounce, but it means to bring out, to unfold, to reveal, or to make known. And from that word, we get our English word, exegesis. And exegesis means authoritatively bringing into visibility something that was there all the time, but which was not seen until brought forth. So John is saying that in the visible Jesus, the invisible God is brought forth. He's revealed. He was made known to the world. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the brightness and the express image of God. Jesus is the exegesis of God. He is the one who is brought forth authoritatively into visibility, God the Father. And how has the Son declared or revealed the Father? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in conclusion, this prologue really is a profound portion. It's not just a preface or an introduction. It is the foundation of the rest of our study in this book. We're going to build upon it this year. It's, it's the foundation of all that will be built upon. So sharpen your spiritual picks and shovels, ladies, because we're going to dig deep as we continue. Tonight, we touched on Jesus as the eternal God, his deity, who came down from heaven and became a man, his humanity, to declare the Father's heart to the world, his testimony. The heart of Jesus has always been in unison with the heart of God. But the question for all of us tonight is, who is Jesus to me personally? Is he a religion or is he the son of God as presented in the Gospel of John? Jesus, or just as the Father's heart beats in unison with the Son, does my heart beat in unison with Jesus? I think we all have heard or know someone uh, 
who has passed and have donated their organs to someone, and it is by their death that they saved the life of another. And, and I just think what a vivid picture of the Father and the Son and salvation through Jesus Christ. And I think we've all heard of stories of family members who've been able to contact the recipients of someone who's received their loved one's heart. And what they want to do, all they want to do is meet that recipient and put their hand just to fill the beating heart of their loved one again. This is what the Father wants from us, ladies. Can the Father, through the Son, fill my heart?